Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy, successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with business owners, executives, and retirees for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to another edition of Wealthy Behavior, the podcast where we're talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial. Joining me today is my colleague and friend, Michael Waldron. You may remember Michael from our July 25th podcast episode where he and I went through all the things that we learned while reading a biography on every president of the United States. Michael and I collaborated on a blog post, and then we talked about some of the financial lessons we took away from that. But today we're grabbing Michael into the podcast to focus on his day job. Michael's the Director of Portfolio Management at Heritage Financial. And in that role, he leads a process by which we update our portfolio asset allocation uh, on an annual basis, but also utilize that same framework to make changes to portfolios during the course of the year. And since asset allocation is the primary driver of portfolio returns, meaning how much you have invested in stocks, bonds, cash, real estate, alternative investments is much more impactful to your risk-adjusted return than whether you're buying Microsoft stock or GE. We thought it'd be a great opportunity to learn how a director of portfolio management makes those asset allocation decisions. And then perhaps more timely or more interestingly for listeners, give us uh, give give you our preview on what we're thinking of in terms of asset classes that are going to be attractive going forward and maybe ones that we'll avoid. So Michael, thanks again for joining us. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior. Thanks for having me back. No problem. So let's get into it. How is the sausage made in terms of building out an asset allocation <laughs> for uh, investment portfolios? Yeah, you know I, I think that's actually a funny way to to phrase it because i'll I'll stick with that for a minute. I think when you start to think about putting together a portfolio, just like a recipe, when you're putting in capital market assumptions or expectations for asset classes, that's very much like the nutritional values in the ingredients that go into a recipe. So what is it way back behind the scenes that's going into this that's going to result in the final product? So capital market assumptions for the layman are, are what, Michael? So when you think about that, it's for each of the asset classes, we're coming up with an expected return. And for every expected return, we have building blocks that I can go into on each asset class. It's a measure of expected risk or the variability of that asset class from year to year. And then a couple of higher level statistics. So things like skewness, which talks about a distribution that might be more on the positive or negative side in extreme cases. Kurtosis, which means do you have more extreme results or do you look like a normal distribution? Uh, and then correlations between each of the asset classes. So how do they tend to act um, when one is up? Is another one up at the same time compared to its average or is it below average uh, at the same time? So expected return is probably the easiest there for individual investors to understand. We are looking at 10-year return expectations for asset classes. So it's obviously extremely important to know what we expect in terms of returns over the decade. Maybe less obvious to folks why risk measurements matter, why correlation matters, why skewness and kurtosis matter. Maybe get into a little bit of why those extra inputs yeah, you know, what's interesting is those inputs are just as critical in the output of kind of an optimization problem. At the same point, to come up with a statement about this, there aren't really great building blocks to 
coming up with what you'd expect for volatility. So you tend to, on those ones, to lean a little bit more on historical relationships between asset classes and then come up with some adjustments if you're looking at a strange period or if uh, one asset class has a much shorter run than other ones where you can uh, link on another asset class that's very much like it to try to come up with some better data. Um, but at the end of the day, we do start our methodology of building objectives for clients starts with volatility, not with returns. Okay. And I think that that is key. So when we think about building an objective for a client, uh, we always talk about, well, what we try to do is ascertain what's the right level of risk that can fit into your financial plan. And that doesn't start with targeting a return. That starts with targeting a volatility measure. So we do uh, start off with building objectives around what we believe is an appropriate volatility for each objective. Um, and then the return is actually an output of that once you've maximized it by combining asset class weights uh, to give you the best return for that risk level. But it does all start with risk. And, and why do we do that, Michael? Is that so there's not too much volatility to support a future expected withdrawal rate, or what? What is what? What drives the starting with risk rather than return? Uh, so, I guess one of the most important things, if you said, you know, well, uh, what portfolio do you want? The three percent, the four percent, the five percent, the six percent? Okay, <laughs> I, I know which one I want so far. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a that's a clear choice. And really, the thing that's driving anybody to take less return is that they're only willing to take less risk. So okay. if you think about what should be driving that, what should be having you do anything than buy all stocks, it's because you don't want to take the full risk of the stock market. So it's very clearly a good thing to, to target off the bat. Don't want to, and also shouldn't, and, right? Based on your financial plan. Absolutely. And okay. uh, in the industry, we talk about sequence of return risk. If you're withdrawing from a portfolio and you have volatility to it, if you're withdrawing, you happen to hit some bad years, at the beginning, it doesn't matter if your average return was good. You really can end up uh, damaging the overall plan. So yeah, there's a there's a fundamental element to it that fits into a plan, and then there's also a kind of a, a gut or a um, <clears throat> tolerance element to it. Do you give up if you're down by X amount? You just can't take it, and that's another bad scenario for for folks. So that's why risk is the starting point. We obviously clearly explained why return is factored in there. Maybe it'll just touch on how correlation helps you build portfolios when you have that information. Yeah. So when you think about correlations between asset classes, if you have asset classes that are very similar to one another, they don't provide the same diversification benefit. Okay. So if you think about cutting the pie and let's say that you're talking about US stocks versus developed international stocks and emerging market stocks, all of those tend to go in the same direction at the same time. So they're not great at diversifying one another. Yes, okay. they're not perfectly correlated. You do want a diversified mix. It helps on the return end, et cetera. But that's not as good of a benefit as adding bonds to a portfolio, which other than in 2022 tends to be an offset to, to stocks. Great. Understood. And the last two things, those are actually things I learned from you, so I'm not even going to try <laughs> to explain them. How does skewness and kurtosis or trying to account for that help you build out a portfolio's asset allocation? Yeah. The, so those might be uh, you know, the, the deepest on the science side, <laughs> but in terms, of, uh, in terms of how they actually have an impact, I think it's more on the art side. 
So okay. when we look at skewness and kurtosis, uh, one of the things that we do is we measure uh, non-normal largest drawdowns, one in a hundred year worst drawdown. And that's where a really bad negative skew. So outcomes that tend to be worse on the negative end than on the positive end, excess kurtosis, more extreme results. Think about credit markets. You get a lot of collecting your yield, not a lot of sure. defaults, and then every once in a while, it hits you in a big way. Those sort of things <clears throat> will push the worst one in a hundred down further. Okay. And in effect, what it does for us, and this really is more on the art end, is it's putting caps on asset classes that have characteristics like that because your standard optimization for a level of risk really understates these characteristics. So tone those down a little bit. Understood. And so when you're doing this, Michael, it's going to start with the capital market assumptions, right? Where are we getting those or how are, how are we building them? Yeah. So <clears throat> for each asset class, there's a unique way that we'll build up um a return expectation, but it really all starts with inflation. And inflation starts by leveraging market validated uh, spreads. So you have treasury inflation protected securities that trade in the market. Those trade at a real yield. And at the same point, you have a 10 year US treasury that's on the run that trades at a nominal yield. You take the difference between those two and you have an implied CPI and implied inflation rate over that period of time. So that's the starting ingredient, our inflation expectation. And then for every asset class after that, you're gonna add inflation plus spreads for risk, for earnings from companies, et cetera, on top of it. Okay, great. Um, anything else you want to elaborate on in terms of how the sausage is made when, when you're building out the asset allocations? Yeah, I'd, I'd say you know there there really is a divide between uh, fixed income and equities in methodology. So when you think about coming up with return expectations on fixed income, you have an observable yield. And in the investment grade space, you know that you're going to get that yield roughly unless you end up having um, <clears throat> defaults. So in investment grade fixed income, you can take a yield to worst and you can say, that's my base case. In high yield, again, you're starting with a yield to worst and then you're subtracting out of that um, kind of some conditional default activity based on where credit spreads are. Just because I have a 9% credit spread doesn't mean I get a 9% return. So sure. based on how extreme those are, uh, we estimate both credit default rates plus expected recovery rates and take those off of the return. And then it's like night and day, you switch to equities and it's a totally different methodology, which again, makes sense because they're not contracts with the stated return on them. They're the excess earnings of company and how that's priced. So for stocks, uh, we do leverage the, the work that was done by Dr. Robert Schiller, where we look at uh, cyclically adjusted earnings yields. We look over a 10-year time frame, 10-year real earnings, so adjusted to the current for inflation, divided by current prices. And then we have a current real yield, plus we add on our CPI projection for inflation. And that's how you start to cook up returns in equities. In equities. And so on a prior podcast, your colleague and our buddy Bob Weiss was talking about multiple expansion and multiple contraction compared to just kind of earnings. Uh, does a capital market assumption more focus on tangible paths to return and, and maybe doesn't focus as much on what investors might be willing to pay for those returns because we just don't know the sentiment or the environment that's coming up? Yeah, absolutely. That That's basically the noise. 
take out That's the noise and just say, what would be the fundamental yield today? And I'll expect that over the long term. And you know what? If I end up having prices adjust up, maybe I get it all in a few years and now we've changed our expectations down um, or vice versa. So yeah, the, those things have a lot to do with the year to year, but longer term, you can base on how are things priced today versus what are the actual fundamental yields, fundamental cash that comes out of each of these investments. Comes out of these businesses. So in the, when you're talking about the noise, the uh, long-term return for a stock investor should be the performance of the businesses that they own and the cash flows that they can receive. The stock price fluctuation might be a lot more intense than right. that in the short term as investors reprice them more frequently than they should be. Right on. And and at the end of the day, there will be a repricing element that's in it. It's just you don't really want to guess at that. So it's better to pay attention to those fundamentals over the longer term. So we update our capital market assumptions on an annual basis. And we use that to take a look at portfolio changes that we should be making. But obviously, we're managing money day in and day out. You use the same framework then uh, to make portfolio adjustments during the course of the year? Exactly. It essentially gives you structure to be able to say, okay, stock prices moved by a lot, but their 10-year earnings real yield, of course, hasn't moved that much. So what is my increase in expected return on this? And therefore, how would I build this in to maximize the return on a portfolio? And that's going to give you a framework, a reasonable way to go about saying, I'm going to increase stocks now that stock prices fell more than what fundamentals over the long term might justify. So yes, on that front, we also, you know, during very short periods of time, it can be difficult to come up with a whole new projection. You know, you've, you've worked in prior data. You don't have, let's say, 2020 is a great example. You right. don't even have first quarter earnings out. So all you have is a drop in price. Yes, you can turn that back through. We'll also sometimes look at an environment and say, are we being compensated for taking risk right now? Are our yields good for taking risk? And if they are, we'll up the volatility targets. And that'll also give us one more mechanism to be able to adjust and adjust quicker um, in an environment like the, like the pandemic. Awesome. Sounds like a lot of work. I'm glad that you've been doing it. So Without further ado, as you looked at capital market assumptions and you looked at updating portfolio asset allocations, uh, what jumped out at you? What meaningful changes do you see to portfolios this year? What asset classes are more or less attractive than people may 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 think? Yeah, so I'd say the the first one is probably a bit of surprise for most people, and that's that inflation expectations year over year have gone down. Hmm. And I think with okay. the environment that we've lived in in 2022. People are used to inflation that's quite hot. But when we look at the 10-year break-evens, the 10-year break-even actually went down by one basis point and essentially says the Fed's going to be able to hit its target of roughly 2.5%. Um, so to that extent, we don't have an increase in inflation. And at the same point, we have an increase in expected returns across asset classes. So this is the perfect scenario for us. This is where you get us smiling. Michael, explain that 10-year break-even thing again. I know you addressed it when you were starting out with how we build out our inflation capital market assumption, but but just explain that again, because I do think that would probably be surprising to folks that inflation expectations are coming down. Yeah. So you, you have uh, two different markets. You have the treasury nominal market, where a treasury comes out, it's going to pay you a coupon. The new one's priced at par. What's that coupon of on-the-run 10-year treasuries? So that's yield number one, risk-free rate over a 10-year period. 
And number two is treasury inflation protected securities. So the treasury comes out with bond issues where they're going to adjust the principal amount that then a rate is applied to by CPI. So on those securities, you're getting a real return. Yep. So you're able to essentially neutralize any inflation. If you take the difference between the yields in those two markets, you're getting the market implied and validated through market transaction uh, expectation for inflation. So if you take the difference as of uh, October 30th is when we ran uh, these, <clears throat> you get 2.52% on the 10-year. So pretty meaningful. Hey, we're going to get back to an environment where inflation is maybe a little higher than the Fed's 2% target, but nowhere near what we've been seeing in the short term. Awesome. Thank you for that explanation. And that's one factor. What else is driving the fact that traditional asset class real returns are shaping up to be higher than uh, people would expect? Yeah. So you take a look across the fixed income market. We're now seeing yields on investment grade products that have five years or so intermediate term duration of four and a half percent. Wow. Okay. Yep. You go year over year, we're looking at bond returns that have increased by between three and four percent. So inflation down and bond returns better by three or four percent. You know, that's fantastic. When we go and we look at equities, obviously prices have fallen over the course of 2022. Not not actually outlandish falls. I mean, the US right. market is down in the mid-teens. That's not that strange of a year in equities. But you're talking about pricing at 85 cents on the dollar from where we came in to the year, and earnings are not worse <laughs> than they were. So you take a look at historical earnings add-on this year um, to complete the 10-year, and those earnings yields are up by roughly a percent. So fixed income expected returns up over 3%, equity returns up over 1%, um, really good environment. And that's where, uh, <clears throat> you know, you want to be adding to traditional asset classes. Um, I would say on that, when we did this process last year, it was exactly the opposite story of what we have this year. So last year, we started the year saying, we really want to be out of fixed income and we want to build out our real assets and alternatives allocation. And those were the moves. And this year, just flip it on its head. We're going to reduce our real assets allocation, which has done really well this year. We're going to reduce our alternative investments that have done well, especially in the private credit space. And then we're going to um, flip that over to traditional asset classes, primarily fixed income. Primarily fixed income. And in fixed income, I know this isn't all that we've done, but for a while we have had a shorter term, higher quality focus. Is that where we're staying? Uh, no, we're, we're increasing our duration. So. Okay. It's not that we uh, swing wildly with our bond portfolio duration. I think this one is easier to think about if you just say, I could lock in this rate for X period of time and would I want to do that? And if right now you can say I can buy five-year high-quality bonds and I can get four or 5% on that, that's a darn good part of a portfolio that gets sure. you a lot of the way to where you want to be. So instead of saying, I'll take my take my turn, buy a one year right now, get a similar rate to that. And then I'll be whatever the rates are a year from now. No, I think I'll, I think I'll take this one at this point for a little bit longer. Um, and, and that kind of works into how long do you want your duration profile to be? And what do you think about credit risk in, in this environment? Do you mind people taking a little bit of credit risk or do you worry about 
potential for a recession in 2023? Uh, so I would say you don't need to force it with credit risk right okay. now. Uh, you can get really good yields in high quality fixed income. Take that and take the volatility offset and take a lot of your risk in equities on, on kind of the positive side. Um, I'd say there is a bit of a switch in um, high yield where we historically have gotten what I would consider some of our credit risk in the private credit markets. Private credit performed perfectly well. There was not additional default activity. You basically clipped your yield for the year on that. Uh, traded high yield has sold off by quite a bit. And now we're seeing that in the more liquid markets, you can actually get yields that are right there, same level, if not a little bit above what you get in the private market. So a little bit of what we're doing is switching from some of those alternatives of private credit into a little bit more of the yield-oriented public credit that's already built in some expectations for the upcoming years of higher defaults from an economic recession. And and will we still have, or would you still see people having real asset exposure? And how would that adjust in 2023? Yes, but generally somewhere about half of where we were before. Um, okay. That asset class pretty much worked out perfectly during this environment. It served its purpose. What we saw in the, the prior year is that private real estate for us was, was up. And yet, when you look at the public market with REITs, REITs were down much more than equities. They were down over 22%. So when you take a when you when you view that and you say, well, a lot of times the public markets go ahead of the private markets. One, you could say maybe private core real estate's on its way down. At very least, even if it's not, you could say, well, REITs are a great opportunity to be in right now because. If the underlying real estate does well, you're going to get that bump, plus you're going to get your bump up in the liquidity premium that's typically there. So we are going to rotate out of some of the private core real estate exposure and into public REITs, where we think not only do you get the underlying asset classes return potential, but you get kind of the, the sell-off that's happened from the liquidity premium uh, that's generally ascribed to REITs. Uh, so, so we will see that switch. Got it. And what are you thinking of or what are you seeing in terms of your stock market exposure globally. I know that we are global stock market investors. We think that that's a very uh, smart starting point for people. You touched a little bit on the US's market decline in, in 2022. Where are you seeing the global mix going forward? Yeah, so this is where what I'd call either controls or governors on the process come into play. Okay. Um, so international markets look really good right now. But you do have a lot of concerning things that have happened globally that have affected places that are outside the U.S. much more than the U.S. So sometimes when you see really good yield opportunities, it also comes with risk that's not diversifiable. Think about this in emerging markets, for instance. You know, Everybody could think about China exposure. That's a real risk. There's some real good return if that story works out well, and there's some real downside if it doesn't. So in our methodology, uh, we put we put some caps around the total amount of risk that we're willing to take within equities compared to just a globally diversified index. Uh, and then we also put tracking error uh, budgets around how far we could be from what would just be a market cap weighted mix. That keeps us generally in line. We're going to inch below what the US market weighting is 
and be a little bit overweight in international markets, um, but not enough to, to be the story of a portfolio. So stay globally diversified. Yes, the opportunity looks good, but don't overdo it. And what is driving those caps or those governors, Michael? Is it the volatility assumption? Is it something else uh, that would essentially drive a little bit of art, I I would say, into the asset allocation process? Yeah, absolute volatility is targeted at no more than what you get in the market cap weight index. So it really puts a, a damper on how much you could use the geographical allocation to just boost return. And then the second is tracking error. So how much different you'd be from market validated prices in a market cap weighted global equity index to make sure that you don't vary too far from that. So science, but the the choices of where you put those caps and tracking error budgets is all art. Absolutely. So we do this to build portfolio asset allocations, to update portfolio asset allocations. And you and I have already discussed that we use it also as a as a tool to make changes to to portfolios. The other thing we we use this for is a twenty year version of these capital market assumptions to update client financial plans. And the reason why we use twenty year is because they should be more stable than the ten year, and you don't want people's return expectations. Uh, fluctuating wildly year to year in a financial plan because it, it can be disorienting, basically, if you're making decisions on it and all of a sudden the returns are a lot better, a lot worse. So this framework does make its way into uh, client financial plans. There's there's less deviation, but it's also um, helpful and instructive as you're building out portfolios to have, a, I think, a deeper look than just history when you're contemplating how a portfolio could perform uh, because the historic numbers may be elevated, frankly, compared to what you could see going forward. Absolutely. And the, I think very similar to what you're saying, Sammy, is you want your capital market expectations to match the planning horizon. And most planning horizons are greater than a 10-year period. So you want to be thinking longer than just what are things going to look like over the next 10 years. Uh, so we, we we do have the capital market assumptions that are both for the 10-year and the 20-year period. The 20-year period uh, right now actually looks a little bit better <laughs> than the right. 10-year period. So uh, when you look at expected returns on on a shorter-term basis, we actually think the long-term returns are slightly better um, than that. So takeaways from investors, well, one, you know, asset allocation is a complicated process. You probably don't want to just look at returns. There are other factors that way in. You should have some kind of financial plan built to guide your risk tolerance budget if you don't have one thought of on your own. Two, traditional asset classes are are back. The 60-40 portfolio may, may be back um, in terms of we're going to have higher return expectations for bonds and stocks uh, going forward. There's still a place in a portfolio for real assets, but you know, shifting the profile a little bit. Uh, it's still good to be a, a global stock market investor, uh, but you do need to have some governors on that because there may be more volatility and risk in some of those markets. Yeah, right on. Any other takeaways you you would add to that? No, I'd say you know if um, if you're coming from a position where you had excess cash today, does look like the best opportunity to invest in any of these objectives that I've seen over the past you know, decade. So really good looking prospective returns. I guess that's the that's the nice side of a of a tough year of returns for traditional asset classes. Like you said, a little bit uh, 
less of a need to be to be fancy in terms of third pillar assets and strategy and more you can access traditional asset classes and get really competitive returns and then there is some nuance in there that's important switches between things like private real estate to public real estate changes in duration profile that might fly a little bit below the scene but are also really important in terms of structuring a portfolio Great. Thank you, Michael. This has been a, a really interesting conversation, and I think it's going to be extremely informative to our listeners. For those of you who want more on this, we are hosting a webinar on January 10th, our 2023 Market Outlook webinar. And as a reminder, all you need to do is register for that, whether or not you can attend. Still get the recording so long as you register. So please check that out at heritagefinancial.net, and there'll be a link to it in the show notes. And I guess, Michael, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, for your loyal listeners from the July podcast, what have you been reading these days? You know, a new uh, John Meacham came out on Abraham Lincoln. So a favorite author and a favorite president. That's one to go with. Are you enjoying it so far? Yes. Yeah, I, 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 I've enjoyed it as well. Well, thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, as a reminder, we'd love your questions and feedback. Please send them to wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net and we'll be sure to address them in a future episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and sharing this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakadis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.